You're listening to the Kitchen Scene Investigator Podcast. Hi there. From my kitchen here in Los Angeles, I'm your host, Nikki Girado. The episode you're about to hear, The Making of a Pastry Chef, with my friend, executive pastry chef Andre Sherry from Kraft here in LA, is an episode that's very near and dear to my heart. Not only because I started off as a baker and cake decorator, but because it gives me the chance to celebrate Chef Andra as a symbol of all the talented creatives that make the restaurant business possible, an industry that has been utterly devastated by COVID-19. Initially, I intended this episode to be the first in a series I called The Making of a Chef, where I'd highlight chefs of all walks of life, men and women that cooked all different kinds of cuisines. And I would zero in on the techniques and the skills and, you know, frontline stories of disasters included, of course, that helped shape their career. To make this happen, I planned on bringing on a brand or advertiser that could help support an ongoing series, a series of interviews intended to help you grow your own life menu, as I like to call it. And then I got to thinking, rather than waiting on money, I feel it's so much more important to share this episode with you, to celebrate Chef Andra and to share the story of her journey. It's pretty amazing. It takes her from being a demo person at Trader Joe's to being executive pastry chef at Kraft. Chef Andra's career is amazing. It spanned SLS in Beverly Hills, to the penthouse restaurant in Santa Monica, to stints making pasta, vegan pastry at the very hip restaurant Irvin, and so, so much more. You can actually check out her entire bio. It's on my website in the show notes section. Okay, <laughs> this conversation with Chef Andra was so much fun. I loved interviewing her. You know, what transpired was so insightful and revelatory, and I, we just gained so many insights into her world as an executive pastry chef. We covered everything from skills and techniques to her favorite flavor combinations, and, you know, what inspires her and the choices that she makes when she creates this beautiful new dessert plate and we get we get to really look inside of her creative process. I also got her to reveal oh my god wait to hear this. I got her to reveal this hilarious disaster that in retrospect it actually was a teachable moment and I I'm thankful that she was so forthcoming. So Andre and I worked together for years and it really was her style like her dessert her flavor palette, her artistry, these all honestly forever change what I thought pastry should be. And simply put, her desserts are bomb. They are delicious. And so I end the episode with the three questions that I ask every guest. What are you drinking? What's making you happy? And what's your favorite gift to give a friend or colleague? If you love the podcast and you love this episode, please take a moment to give it a review. It really helps the show be discovered. And if you'd like to make a donation to help me cover production costs, you can make a donation on my website, kitchenscenainvestigator.com. There is a PayPal button that um, will facilitate making a donation. All right. I started off by asking Andra how she made her way to the sweet, sweet career of being a pastry chef. 
Please enjoy my conversation with executive pastry chef, Andra Shiri. Hi, Andra. Welcome to the show. It's so great to see you. It's been way too long. I'm so excited to chat with you today because, you know, you were really the first pastry chef that changed my assumptions of what dessert and and pastry should be. And I'll admit, until we worked together at the penthouse in uh, Santa Monica, I was stuck on Jersey diner dessert land where I I thought dessert was, you know, a big slice of New York cheesecake with like gelatin covered strawberry stuff on top. And, um, and mind you, I had a cake business, <laughs> but I feel like cake decorating is, is completely different than plated desserts. That said, in a previous episode, I talked about uh, what I recommend to my students and what I, I believe deeply. And that is this concept of develop your own life menu, right? Get good at 20 things and call it a day. And learning to cook or bake, you know, when you're putting your life menu together can feel really overwhelming. And I think the same can be said about building a pastry career, that you can build a wonderful life menu and you can build a wonderful career on a on a set of skills. Um, and those skills will help you, you know, build your aesthetic and your palate. So rewind to working uh, together at uh, the penthouse, Andra. I remember tasting your brown butter tart and thinking to myself, what is happening here? Oh my God. I, I had that memory in my mind and I thought to myself, I have got to get Andra on the show. So welcome. Welcome to the show. Um, I feel like when I tasted your brown butter tart, it, it was almost, it was almost like it was in your DNA. Like, were you always like this? Like, did you, did, like, did you always want to be a pastry chef? Like, how did, how did this come to be? Well, thank you for that. That was a lovely <laughs> introduction. Um, well, I can't take complete credit for the brown butter dessert. That was actually an inspiration from Amy Pressman and Seth Greenberg, as you know, as you know. <laughs> for the audience but, that doesn't know, um, Seth and Amy, tell me a little bit about Seth and Amy. So Amy Pressman was an amazing pastry chef. Um, and she was really good friends with, uh, Seth Greenberg, who was the executive chef at the Huntley at the time that we worked there together. Her recipe was originally, it was a black butter tart. I mod, her recipe came to me by way of Nick Irvin, who was also uh, a chef at the Huntley at the time. Um, it was his favorite dessert ever. And I actually wanted to make him that dessert for his birthday as a surprise. And so he gave me the recipe and I kind of decided to put my own little spin on it. Um, I added a crust. Um, I added some pecans, I believe at the time. <laughs> and, you know, I threw it all together and it actually worked out. And that was actually one of my first experiences modifying a dessert or a, a recipe and changing it to make it my own. Um, and that was the beginning of your career, right? It like, was. So was that right after you went to school? Like, was did you go to culinary school right out of high school? Like, how did you get to pastry? So it wasn't a direct path for me at all. Like, I 
I've always loved baking and I've always been very attuned to food, even as a kid. So yeah, I definitely was that kid as a, <laughs> as a child. Um, but I don't think I came into that awareness of that that was what I wanted to do as a career until I was in, I was already an adult. I was out of school. I already had my bachelor degree. Um, but when I was a kid, going back to when I was a kid, when I was playing with dolls, it was always about what am I going to feed them? Um, you know, I played tea parties with my sisters and again, it was all about creating the menu and, you know, what are we going to eat? And <laughs> I don't think I really realized as a kid that that wasn't how other people were thinking, you know, <laughs> like as the, as even in play, it was always very focused on the food. Um, I also have an aunt that is an amazing cook and she would really indulge me and make, uh, you know, little mini versions of whatever it was that she was making in the kitchen. So she would make, for example, like homemade flour tortillas, and she would always make a little mini version of whatever she was making for me. So I just feel like I always incorporated food somehow into my play. And, you know, I think that that interest just really blossomed from there. Um, and, and having that as a background, um, fast forward to being an adult, like, did you have an epiphany? Like, did you taste something and go, I can do that better? Or like, <laughs> did you have an experience with pastry that really like got you excited and was like, oh, you know, that sunshine moment where you're like, oh, yes, now I know what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I did have an epiphany that I really clearly recall. And it was, okay, so again, as a, as a kid, I, I would play with food. And as an adult, um, I always had food-related careers. But it did take a really long time to dawn on me. But um, I had all these food-related careers where I worked as a barista. I worked, um, you know, a lot of different cafes. But the job that really was the turning point for me was working at Trader Joe's. And I was actually the person that would create the demo, um, you know, the demo mm -hmm. station when you come in and they have the samples and all of that. At the time that I was working at Trader Joe's, uh, I don't know if it's the same way now, but that was everything that I did there. I didn't really have to do anything else. So that was 100% my job was creating the demos. And so I would organize these tastings for the crew, I think every couple of months where we would get in new products. And so I, I would create these menus for the Staff and it was kind of like throwing a, or it was kind of like catering um, mm -hmm. on a small scale, I would say. Um, but after doing that for about about six months, I it just it really did dawn on me that you know maybe I could do this as a career and actually you know do this all the time. So yeah, I did have that moment where I decided to go to culinary school and just you know kind of dive in from there. Mm -hmm. um, the job at Trader Joe's sounds like a lot of fun. I remember reading. Uh, about your promotion as executive pastry chef at Kraft. And I thought, wow, that's, I was floored and I'm very, very proud of you. And for, for the listener at home that doesn't really know what a pastry chef does, like take me through, like, what is a day like in a day in the life of pastry chef Andra? What does that look like? Well, I tend to work in the mornings. Um, I prefer a morning shift. So my day starts with baking bread, um, which means when I get in, I have to heat up the ovens. I have to set up the station. Um, I have to see what's going on for the day. Um, we have a lot of private parties at Kraft, um, and we get contracts that are printed out daily. Um, so I'll check, you know, what's going on for the day. You know, uh, so I'm, a large part of my day is um, producing what is on the menu. Um, so 
you know, right now we have a pavlova and we have um, a funnel cake and we have uh, a souffle. You really have a souffle on the. (laughs) You have a souffle on the menu. (laughs) We do have a souffle on the menu. Really, Jean Ducha souffle just went on today with uh, roasted pears, uh, coffee hazelnut ice cream, and pear sorbet. (laughs) Did you hear that, folks? I think I just gained five pounds just listening to that souffle description. That's amazing. I give you a lot of credit for putting a souffle on the menu because how is it a French souffle or like because. Do you par bake it? Like how? So the souffle that we have, it it is a pretty classic French uh, souffle, um, but we we make a custard base um, with uh, the chocolate jandusha folded in, um, and then it's a meringue on the side, and they're just folded together and baked. And it's actually here's the thing about souffles, like, and we'll we are about to get some insider (laughs) scoop here from the pros. Do tell, tell me about soufflés, darling. So we will get in, you know, I, I want to talk about the skills that are important and all that. And one thing I want to say is that baking is actually pretty easy if you can follow directions and you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So if you can recognize a soft peak from a stiff peak from a medium peak, like you're halfway to making a souffle. And you know, once you recognize what you're looking for and you're able to properly execute it, I mean, it just takes a little bit of practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And souffles are not as finicky. I mean, not every souffle ever, but a lot of souffles are not as finicky as you would think. Like once you actually make the batter, if you will, um, it actually can hold for a long time. So once it's made, you're just popping it and warming it up or you're just heating it up in the oven. Pretty much once it's actually made, it's no harder than just warming up, you know, some chocolate chip cookies to send out. Wow. I'm going to have to get your recipe because when I learned to make souffles in culinary school, it I, I needed a sedative, right? Because... <laughs> You know, the challenge is, of course, to learn the skill of making a souffle, which is a thing in in and of itself. But then you have to plate it, right, and get it to the the diner before it collapses. So there's like this urgency, like this this sense, <laughs> this sense of urgency. And I, I remember the like the first time we we did it to show technique, right? And then the second time we did it was to show flavor pairings and creativity. And I was like, y'all, I just made it vanilla. And so <laughs> um, uh, I'm just going to make it like more vanilla. <laughs> because I was like, this is, I can't do this. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, I'm going to have to get your insider scoop on, <laughs> on souffles and this soft peak business. Um, I'm happy to share. And I, I never hate on vanilla. Vanilla is one of my favorite flavors. So. Is it really? Is yes. vanilla really vanilla. one of your favorites? I'm not even joking when I say that our, our Mexican vanilla ice cream is my favorite flavor of ice cream. Like people don't believe me when I tell them, but vanilla, really good quality vanilla. I'll take that over any flavor any day. Like <laughs> We we are we are simpatico on that because I'm not... A, I'm not a chocolate person. See, me neither, really, actually. I have to be in the mood for it. Like, yeah, yeah which is sometimes a hormonal thing. Like, <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, I you, th- they say, you know, if you ask a person like um, eight questions about food, you get to really know a lot <laughs> about them. And I will inevitably be asked, am I a chocolate or a vanilla person? Hands down, vanilla. Mm-hmm 
custard. Heck yeah. Yeah. Like, with you. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, I remember when we worked together uh, discovering your ice creams and I was like, I don't know what the magic <laughs> is that uh, that you were putting in in ice creams, but I think that that's one of your like superpower skills. And um, and speaking of skills, like those soft peaks and those medium peaks for your souffle and your firm peaks, um, for me as a vanilla custard person, I when I started building my repertoire, I focused on getting really good at custard, which is hard, which is, which is really hard. Um, but for, for the, the baker at home that's looking to, to expand their life menu, which can feel very overwhelming as a pastry chef, like what skills did you rely on or did you develop to grow your career? So I think one of the biggest things, the most important thing is just being very organized. You have to have what they call mise en place in the kitchen, which mise literally- Mise en place, I know what that is, but what? <laughs> explain to me what mise en place is. I mean, it literally translates to everything in place, but it can refer to your, you know, your tools and your equipment and your ingredients and all of that. But it's also a state of mind where you're kind of just most efficiently organizing your time and your space and just- you know, so that everything flows well. You know, the expression about setting yourself up for success. I mean, that's exactly what you have to do every day in the kitchen. And it, it really is a state of mind. I mean, you're constantly just trying to figure out what is the most efficient way to do something. What's the, you know, the quickest way to get something done. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just ongoing constantly all, all day long. Second thing I would say is just really understanding um, terms, like recipe terms, like knowing what does creaming mean? What does whipping mean? What does fold? mean you know all of these things are actually very essential to the recipe um so make sure that you understand your recipes before you even start and that's a really good point about recipes because i learned the very hard way in culinary school that it is so important to read through a recipe twice if not three or four times before even putting your mise en place together so that you could get in that state of mind and knowing, you know, where you're going to go with, with that plate. That being said, like on a fundamental base, do you think it's more important to, or what do you think are like the fundamental terms that you should have at your fingertips? Definitely creaming. I would say uh -huh. <laughs> know what, you know, properly creamed butter and sugar looks like, uh, yeah, whipping, um, beating, mm -hmm. <laughs> folding sounds so violent. You know? <laughs> um, uh, again, you know, soft peak, medium peak, firm peak. Uh, and that refers to egg whites, right? Or just in general? Uh, typically egg whites. I don't think that I've heard it refer to anything else, but I mean, it could be egg whites just by themselves or egg whites, you know, with sugar, which would be a meringue. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, uh, I, one of my favorite expressions that I learned from one of my chef instructors was through pain we learn. And it's it's awful, but sometimes those are the, the teaching moments, you know, mm -hmm. when you've overcreamed your butter and your cookies are flat and you realize that what you did is you weren't creaming. What you actually did was make a little soup with your <laughs> sugar and butter, you know, mm -hmm. and, and just really understanding that, you know, what the parameters are, I guess, like what, 
what fluffy is versus what you know melted butter and sugar mm-hmm. looks like. It's true. It's it's true. Um, so pastry was a, a very small part of of my program, and it was it was not for the faint of heart. Uh, um, I remember trying to work through even like uh, quick breads, right, and knowing when the the dough that knowing when to stop messing with the dough, right? And that fundamental state of quick bread, it took me a long time to figure out intuitively when to stop. And I know that the science is there, right? Because the gluten develops and yada, yada, yada. Um, But for me, three things stand out. And of course, that was like the texture of dough, right? Knowing when, when the gluten had developed enough leave it. That was one thing. The second for me was peaks. I thought I I had an idea of what medium peak was and obviously it was firm peak. <laughs> um it took me a minute to figure that out. Uh the third thing that really stayed with me was the texture of different doughs. So not only the the development of gluten, but like the texture because some of the breads were loose. And I had this idea in my head that all doughs are going to be firm and fluffy and bouncy. Um, but I, f- I feel like we're starting to touch upon a few really good um, skills uh, that I'm hearing that you use to build your career. And then, so that sounds fundamental. And then from there, you you used what, what other skills helped you develop your career? Um, so I would say um, scaling accurately or measuring your ingredients. It, it sounds so basic and fundamental, but I mean, it really is the foundation for any recipe. Um, 90% of the time, if you have a mistake in the recipe, I mean, I'll look back to, you know, did I scale things correctly? What do you did mean I measure? scale? Um, so scaling is measuring things out and that could be either by volume or by weight, but just making sure that you know how to properly scoop out a cup of flour. I mean, it could make the difference of, you know, an ounce or so, and that will really change your recipe. So, you know, I mean, in, in a professional kitchen, for the most part, we are weighing things out, you know, in grams or ounces, um, but there are times when, you know, I, I, I will actually use a, a level scoop and, you know, I mean, you'd have to make sure that you're scooping and scraping it off at a level uh-huh. <laughs> surface. Um, so yeah, scaling is definitely one of the fundamental skills. You want to make sure that you're measuring things accurately. Um, and I would say another kind of basic thing is just, uh, knowing how to use your equipment, uh, basic knife skills, um, for pastry. I mean, you know, we're not doing any fabricating meat or breaking down animals or anything like that. Um, but you still have to know how to cut and core and peel, you know, different fruits. And there's way to, to do that efficiently and safely. And um, that's, again, I mean, that not only saves you time, but it's just... Um, I, I agree. I agree. Knife skills. Um, and and I knew this going into culinary school, but it was punctuated in culinary school, like how important knife skills are. And it's not just, you know, a brunoise or a a julienne. It's at the very core of the craft. Even if it is like how you peel a fruit or, uh, you know, the, the size of 
of your chopped walnuts or whatever the case may be. I, I cannot stress anymore how important knife skills are. So yeah, I feel you on that one. Yeah, I mean, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be, you know, I don't, it's not like I could tourney, you know, potatoes or whatever the skills. That She's they, getting fancy uh, with these words. <laughs> what is tourney? is a really funny little kind of almost football shape that, uh, you know, you could, they, they teach you in culinary school how to do it, but I've, I've never tourneyed anything in Neither my life I. outside of culinary school. Neither have I. But, but just making sure that you can cut things so that they're relatively the same size so that they cook the same way. And, and, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of where I'm getting. That's a really good point because, um, I'll uh, reference an experience I've had. Like I've been helping my sisters, you know, develop their life menu. And (laughs) one thing that, uh, we had a hard time with was the size of the ingredients, right? For example, she just made this beautiful side for Thanksgiving and it was like Brussels sprouts and, and sweet potato and everything was uniform. And, um, and I, and I said to her, I said, see, it is so important to have your ingredients be uniform, not across the board, but appropriate to, um, to what you're, you're trying to make. And if you're going to tourney your potato, make sure that all your potatoes are tourneyed <laughs> the right size, right? I'm going to put a tornado dessert on the menu just for you, <laughs> Nikki. And yeah, we're going to make an apple pie and tourney all the apples. <laughs> That's a promise. <laughs> That's a promise. That actually sounds like a nightmare dessert. Like this, this, this apple crostata with like tornado apples. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. Oh my goodness. But, but speaking of nightmares, right? I'm sure you've had a few in 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 your career like have you have you ever had like such a disaster where you um that it was life-changing or career-changing or or have you ever had a disaster that was such a teachable moment it actually forced you to grow (laughs) it's so funny I feel like you could do a podcast just on like kitchen disasters like honestly like I have so many some that have happened to me some that have happened to other people but um I don't, probably the the most memorable experience, and this happened very early in my career, so it definitely had an impact on me, <laughs> was uh, working at SLS. Um, <clears throat> we had a dessert where we had a coconut foam, um, which I don't know if... Uh, what do you mean coconut, coconut foam? foam? Okay. I should explain what an ISI bottle is. Yes. Um, okay. So an ISI bottle is a container that you can put a charge and night is it night night uh you're two professionals (laughs) i don't know what (laughs) isn't it isn't it um like nitrous no nitrous oxide that's something i know that's the word that's coming like a charger it's a a charger it's a charger and it, it what it does is it aerates the liquid but it creates a lot of pressure in the bottle itself and there's only one way out, which is through this tiny little hole and you, you know, you squeeze the bottle and out comes this foam, right? So we had made the coconut foam and the way that you do that is you, um, you steep toasted coconut in the cream and it was just this sweetened kind of coconut cream going into the bottle. We didn't know the part about straining the coconut, right? Oh my God. So, so we put the <laughs> coconut cream and, and toasted coconut all in the bottle. 
<laughs> and it's not coming out, you know? And, and we, there, like I said, there's only one way out and there's a massive amount of pressure in the bottle. Oh my goodness. So my friend and coworker at the time <laughs> decided to just open it by twisting off the top, which <laughs> releases all of the pressure oh. at once. So it was literally like we heard a pop and then it was the whole patisserie was covered in just <laughs> coconut foam. Like, it was horrible. And then, like, I mean, like literally I remember looking at my friend and it was like a cartoon where I just saw her eyes open and she's just like white covered. <laughs> so I will say that the lesson there was, again, know your equipment, know how it works, but also communication. I mean, we were a new staff. Obviously, this had not been communicated to anybody. <laughs> we were all... Uh, the paste, the, the pa- executive pastry chef at the time was the chef instructor at the art institute where I was going at the time. So he had hired a lot of students and this was a new kitchen job for a lot of us. And so, you know, nobody knew what an ISI bottle was. And so somebody should have told us what it was. I, I would before. think so. Is, is SLS, um, chef, uh, Jose Andres's place? Ah, the one in Beverly Hills. Yes. And I I was part of the opening team for that. And that was actually my first big culinary job outside of school. Um, That that was actually my first culinary job. Um, But I I was hired there, you know, immediately. Like I was still a student in school. So wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, (laughs) That's, that's very, that's very impressive. And to, and to your point about communicating, I think that that's a transferable skill in for any career path that you choose. And I remember, being in culinary school, um, we had to write narratives, right, for our our lab. And um, I, I'm verbose. I just go on and on and on. And my chef instructor said to me, you know, Nikki, I leave yours for for the end. <laughs> and And I thought, wow, that's really sweet. Like, are you saying that because I'm a bad cook? Or, and she goes, you, you know what, Nikki, you're, you're a good writer. You're just a good oh, writer. <laughs> I was like, man, that's kind some rough a, communication. Backhanded like, communication there. Right? <laughs> but, in, but in a kitchen, no, honestly, in, in a kitchen, to your point, you have to communicate clearly, right? So, yeah, communicating is very important. When I train uh, people... You know, I mean, they might not necessarily know the most efficient way right off the top of their head. So, you know, there's training involved with that. I mean, one thing that I like to teach people or, or new staff when they come in is how to make an ice cream base. Um, Ooh, and, we're getting insider you know, info getting here. Insider. So and what the, exactly do you put in your ice cream base? Well, our ice cream base is pretty straightforward. It's actually a very standard recipe, but we use very high quality ingredients and, you know, good techniques. So it ends up being really delicious. Um, but it's, you know, it's milk, cream, sugar, egg yolks, and salt. And then really, that's it. That's it. And then we just swap out whatever we're going to steep into the milk and cream. Mm -hmm. Um, But what I try to teach people uh, with that recipe is how you should start your milk and cream steeping with whatever, like, let's say my favorite Mexican vanilla ice cream, (laughs) like you get it steeping with uh, the Mexican vanilla beans. And as it's steeping, that's when you're cracking your egg yolks and getting them ready to go. Because that way, by the time you're finished, your milk and cream is just ready for you, hot and scalded 
scalded, you know, where it needs to be, um, as opposed to, you know, cracking your egg yolks first and then getting your milk and cream ready. It just will take double the time and it just, you know, doesn't make any sense. I but think that goes back to what you were saying before about mise en place. Totally. About having everything in its place and, and building on that is communicating that process. And I would imagine that when you're, when you're training staff, that your ability to communicate clearly your expectations or the recipe um, is like the driving force of success, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and again, I mean, it takes that training and that communication to really impart that knowledge. It's not something you're born with. I mean, I certainly didn't know everything, you know, my first day into the kitchen. But yeah, I mean, it just takes some observation and some practice and, you know, um, repetition and eventually things kind of click where you're, you know, you decide this is the better way of doing something. Um, and speaking of a better way to do something, I've, I've seen how your aesthetic and your palette has developed over the years. And, um, like what, what has been the most helpful in developing your aesthetic and your palette? Is it technique is it knowing about ingredients? Like what has been the driving force of your development of aesthetic and palette? Gosh, so <laughs> both of those things are really, really important. But one thing that stands out is when I was working at the Huntley um, and working with Seth Greenberg, he introduced me to the Santa Monica Farmer's Market, which was just a revelation for me. I mean, I take probably most of my inspiration is just from going to the market and seeing what's good, you know, and, and, you know, if Warren pears look delicious, then I'm going to make a Warren pear dessert. That's how the Jean Duja souffle came into being. Um, you know, I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in if you find the best quality ingredients and yeah, I mean, technique definitely comes into play as well, but you know, if you have the best quality fruits and chocolate and dairy and all of that, I mean, really like all you're doing is trying not to mess it up, you know, like the flavors are already there and you're just bringing them out. You're coaxing them out with your technique. So yeah, I mean, I, I think most of my inspiration I get from the market, but it can come from all over. I mean, it can come from, you know, other chefs that I'm working with. Um, it can come from, you know, Instagram or the internet or blogs or, you know, I'm constantly just reading and researching and um, inspiration can just strike when it, you know, when it happens, it's not like you're trying to make it happen. <laughs> like, I, 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 I feel you on that one because um, having grown up in a Puerto Rican American family, we ate very specific food, right? And then I went off to college and I, you know, I worked in corporate America and I started to discover all of these different cuisines. But fundamentally, I was a cook of Spanish food uh, with a little bit of French technique thrown in there. And once I started discovering like Israeli food or uh, Mediterranean food or uh, African food, I, I, I just want to like grow my repertoire. Like I'm, I'm so excited to learn about, you know, different ingredients and different types of, of, of combos. And I love going to the market. I, I too, I, I too, I love going to the market. I think we're very, we're, we're blessed with an abundance here in, in, in SoCal. Um, and what are you seeing lately at the market that you're excited about? Well, 
I mean, now, I mean, luckily we're in California and we still have fruit, whereas I think the rest of the country right now is just, you know, maybe some citrus and (laughs) not much else. But, you know, I mean, oh gosh, we have so many, I mean, some of my favorite um, farmers, if I can give shout outs at the market, would be, um, you know, persimmons and pomegranates are just magical from JJ's Lone Daughter. Um, Rincon del Mar has the best passion fruit and Sharamoya and feijoada, which um, right now the winter, it's kind of funny. Um, this was something I guess that was sort of a re- revelation for me as well. Um, I, I didn't know before I got into the culinary world that tropical fruits are the winter fruits, you know, which makes sense. Neither did I. Yeah. Like, Neither did I. So, I had no idea. So right now, I mean, I'm kind of depending on guava and and passion fruit and pineapple and all these things to kind of bring like pops of color. Whereas, I mean, I'm not talking down on citrus and apples because those are also wonderful. And, <laughs> you know, if I can shout out to Kiyoma or K- Kuyama orchards, they have the best, best apples I've ever had. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm going to have to check that out. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So there's, you know, they have the Arkansas blacks and I just discovered an apple called Ashmead's kernel that they it's have. It's called what? Ashmead's kernel, which is the ugliest apple you'll probably ever see, <laughs> but it's so delicious. Like it's, it's like this brown prehistoric looking kind of apple, but it has this really sweet tart kind of just really good flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been scooping those is up. It- is it a baking apple or is it like a, a you know, a, what kind of apple? What do, what does it lend itself the best to? Honestly, um, I've only eaten it out of hand at this point because it's so delicious that I haven't even cooked with it. Yeah, it's just so good eating out of hand. So at Craft, at um, we do a, a fresh fruit plate, um, which I actually take a lot of pride in. I mean, that's one of the you know, sometimes at the market, um, you find fruit that's it's just so beautiful. Um, you you actually don't even want to do anything to it sometimes, you know. So sometimes the best way to eat it is just to present it as is on the, you know, on the plate. So yeah, the fruit plate is probably like one of my favorite things that I do at work. Um, Funny enough, my inspiration to uh, go through the farmer's market was from Chef Seth. Our, our mutual mentor. And uh, I remember him saying to me, you know, you have the greatest farmer's market in all of America, a stone's throw away. And I, I too, I started to go through the farmer's market. And uh, for me, I discovered so many different melons that I had never tasted before. And I was like, what is this? It, I, I don't want to use the word sweet, flippantly. But when I tasted all of these different types of melons, it it just gave me like this, this incredible new, like flavor vocabulary for sweet and delicious. And like what I know to be sweet and delicious is on a whole different level because of going to the farmer's market. Did you, have you ever had that kind of like experience when you discover something new at the farmer's market? I feel like every time I go to the market, honestly, I mean, I, I'm, there's just so much going on there. And then, you know, I mean, after going for a while, you develop a relationship with the farmers and, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll kind of, they'll save special things for you or, you know, Andy's, um, orchard is also one of my favorite farms. Um, they go, they grow beautiful, beautiful stone fruit. Um, they're not at the market year round, but, 
For the listener that doesn't know what stone fruit is, what is stone fruit? So stone fruit is um, peaches, plums, cherries. They're they're the fruits that have the the pit in the middle. It's not seeds. Um, so yeah, pretty much any fruit that has that hard kernel in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and they pretty much exclusively only do stone fruit. So they're only at the market, you know, in the summertime. Mm-hmm. Um, but talk about, you know, life changing. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm ruined for supermarket fruit forever because I've had a nectarine from Andy's orchard. And I like, know. there is nothing like, like, <laughs> I can't even explain to you the, the balance of the sweet and the tart and just perfectly ripe fruit in its season is the best that you'll ever get, you know, I mean, it's, would you say that that's a skill that also helped build your career? Is this respect for the seasons? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and, and yeah, respect for the seasons, um, just trying to source the best quality ingredients that I can, which is staying in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not going to find, you know, strawberries in October, like on, on the venue, like I'm not going to do it. Like I know that they're available, but you know, I, I, I definitely try to stay in season and there's kind of, there, there's a saying about, um, what grows together goes together. Oh, so t- if you talk to me about yeah, that, I like a, that concept. it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of funny. It's like the things that are in season together tend to taste really good together, like melons and grapes and figs, like are wonderful together and berries with, you know, peaches in the summer are, are amazing. So, I mean, if you, just kind of follow that natural pattern that mother nature has laid out for us. I mean, you know, you pretty much can't go wrong as long as your fruit is amazing. (laughs) I love that concept. I mean, and that's such a, that's a powerful, that's a powerful fundamental skill to have. Like when you're developing your life menu to think, okay, what grows together goes together. So if it's winter and you know that those fruits and vegetables grow together in that season, then, you know, you can play with them together. That's, that's really powerful. I, I've never, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. I think, um, and you know, I'm trying to remember where I first heard that term, but I think that it's one of my favorite books is the Chez Panisse, um, cookbook. And that book is actually organized by the seasons, the, the pastry version of the Chez Do you Panisse mean Alice cookbook. Waters Chez Panisse? Yes. I remember yes. you had that book <laughs> in your station at the penthouse. I remember see, you used to read that book religiously. Now I know why. Yeah. I mean, that book was such a, you know, I mean, I had Seth and I had my Chez Panisse cookbook that was sort of my like education out of culinary school. And it's a beautiful book. I mean, I, a lot of times, you know, books, sometimes I'll, I'll leaf through them for, for such a long time before I actually even make something. And, and that is definitely a book that I can just read for pleasure. I mean, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> um, I, you just mentioned something that I think um, is is worth going into a little bit more, that there are some resources that are good f- for instruction, and there are other resources that are good for inspiration. And like you just said about the Chez Panisse book, it, it functions both ways. Do you have a resource that you go to, let's say, for just aesthetic inspiration? I feel like Instagram with that is totally, Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, I mean, it's all pictures anyhow. And and a lot of times um, I'll be 
visually inspired by something and then just kind of decide how I'm going to make it on my own. So I might see, you know, somebody's apple tart or something, we'll say. And, you know, I mean, they might have done something really clever with, you know, the way that they cut the apples or, you know, the way that it's plated or something. And so I have no idea how they they did it, but I just will create my own version that's sort of inspired by what I have seen. So yeah, for visual inspiration, I would say that's mainly kind of, you know, where I, I look at the internet or I look at blogs or... I'm, I'm the same way. Lately, I've been friending um, chefs and pastry chefs like in India and in the Middle East and in Africa, because I, I want to see how they do it unadulterated. And there's this, I wish I remember her name right now, but there's this cook in India and she has such an interesting aesthetic about the simplest of simplest dishes. I'll have to, I'll have to go through my Instagram and, and get her name and I'll put it in the show notes. But, um, I, I like to see what people are doing in other countries that have nothing to do with America, you know, for inspiration. And so speaking of inspiration, have you, have you ever, or do you find yourself inspired by maybe a, a time period or an art time period that that inspires you? I mean, definitely my childhood. I feel like a lot of cooks are the same way. You know, I mean, it's the flavors that you're first familiar with. It's the flavors that, you know, remind you of home. Um, Such as, I, like, what flavors? Well, my my uh, my aunt that I mentioned before around the holidays, I always think of her because, um, you know, she would make champurado or she would make atole or, you know, tamales. And, I mean, these are the flavors. Um, I kind of have a funny story about tamales, actually. Um, as a kid, I legitimately thought that you left coffee and tamales for Santa. Like, I didn't <laughs> – we didn't leave milk and cookies. I know I'm a pastry chef, but we didn't leave milk and cookies. But it was because that's what my dad liked, you know, oh. and, and I did not know until I went to school that other kids were leaving milk and cookies for Santa. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> so, like, <laughs> coffee and tamale. I mean, that actually still makes more sense to me. I mean, if you're, you know, riding around all night, like, milk and this milk and cookie business. <laughs> so, Give him a tamale <laughs> and un cafecito. Por favor. Ay, bendito. Ay, bendito. For Santa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, you know, I mean, I think we always kind of go back to those childhood flavors and um yeah I mean I do find myself inspired by that when I I, I did actually recently um well last year uh, around the holidays I made a ca- cafe de Oya ice cream mm-hmm. um and and it which was, is for the non-industry person <laughs> it's a spiced coffee of sorts we'll say um it typically will have things like cinnamon or orange zest and kind of the warm holiday spices i would say i mean it's available year round but for me it just seems very christmasy somehow so so yeah i mean we did that um i've definitely you know we've put a flan on flan on that's kind of awkward <laughs> a flan we put a flan on, on. <laughs> flan on. <laughs> on the menu <laughs> Uh, one year and I, I really wanted to have a buñuelo as um, a garnish for it just because I, you know, I mean, I love them as What's a What's a buñuelo? Buñuelo is um, kind of like, if you can imagine if you fried a, a flour tortilla and then either coated it in cinnamon sugar or like a really, it, it, there's two ways of doing it. You could either cover it with cinnamon sugar or like a really sticky kind of molasses type syrup. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's like a 
sweet nacho chip, I guess we'll say. That good. <laughs> it's really good. Sign me up for that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I guess the Hispanic flavors um, uh-huh. are, are uh-huh. my inspiration as, as a kid. Um, but, you know, out in my adulthood and as I came across other, um, you know, cuisines and I have definitely been inspired by them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have Middle Eastern food until I was probably about 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's like one of my favorite favorite cuisines to explore. Um, I just love all the flavors. I love sumac. I love yogurt. I love, um, you know, just all these really fun flavors that I never, ever encountered. So Middle Eastern as in like um, Persian, Middle Eastern, uh, Israeli, like, do you have like a, a, a more specific area that you really, really like? Or like the, just like the, of, of that geography? I would say just of that geography. I mean, I'm using the term very loosely. I just mean as opposed to the flavors that I was familiar with as a kid. And Um, to be fair, I mean, to be fair about that region. um, And and I had this discussion uh, with a chef. Um, I think that if you refer to regions being like where certain ingredients come from, I think is, is a more fair construct than a country because if you look at where um saffron comes from or zatar or sumac um a hundred years ago that region was called something fast forward to now it's called something very different you know the 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 borders of countries change but the the place of origin doesn't but so i get it i get that that middle eastern um, palette I'm fascinated by it. Oh yeah, yeah like, fascinated. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, going back to the the melons. I mean, melon and rose water. Um, we uh, I oh, had wow, a that sounds so <laughs> beautiful. Wow, it's one of my favorite flavor combinations. And so I, melon, as in like fresh melon with rose water. Like, what am I doing? Am I putting rose water in a cup and like <laughs> dunking, <laughs> dunking well, the melon? Rosewater is pretty strong, so I wouldn't suggest maybe a dunk, but um, but yeah, I mean, in, how are you using any, the, the rose water for that? We've made um, a sorbet, which I really love, but I mean, honestly, yeah, if you just have a nice, fresh, cold melon and just put a tiny little sprinkles of rose water on it, that, that would be delicious just on its own. I'm so blown away by this idea <laughs> because I have rose water that I purchased a really high quality rose water because I've been following. Following um, Odalegi, Odalengi, is mm-hmm. that my my pronouncing it correctly? Odalegi, Od- right? Mm-hmm. The, the the Israeli uh, chef, and like I was saying at the top of the show, I just have been so desperate to get out of this Spanish food rut. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I'm so inspired by how he cooks and 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 the flavors of Israel and and Persian food for that matter. And they, they use rose water. So I thought, let me go get the best rose water <laughs> that I could, I could find. It is still sitting in my refrigerator because it's a big flavor, but now I know to put it with melon. It's actually really good with a lot of fruit. 
Like, yeah, really? it's really good. And and the thing with rose water is so you don't want it to be the first thing that you taste, like, because it is a big flavor. You want it to be kind of a back note. And it might even be so subtle that somebody might not necessarily know that it's rose water. It's just like that kind of subtle mingling with the other flavors is what you want. Like, you don't want it to just be like, bam, like, <laughs> here's some rose. Like, <laughs> it's just a little aggressive. But but it's it's beautiful. Um, I, I like it with rhubarb. I like it with strawberries. I like it. You could put a little bit in jams. You could put a little in whipped cream. I mean, you could put a little. I don't know if you're making ice cream at home, but I mean, it's just it's a really, really great back note. I'm thinking, you know, we were talking about the apple, right? The and, and the the tornado apple tart that you're going to make for me, <laughs> but I'm waiting for it. Um, but I'm thinking like a, a whipped cream for that tart that you're going to make for me with a little infusion of rose water. Totally. Does that sound good? Totally. What? I mean, I, so here's, I, I feel like I love um, fruits and flowers together. Like it's just kind of elegant and nice to me. But again, I mean, it's not, you want the, the flower to be sort of the back note. So again, with like lavender or rose, like I, I love those and I love pairing them with fruit. Um, but you know, it can go from like lovely to like soap and just like one drop. So you just kind of like exercise restraint there, but, but it's, it's, it's a beautiful flavor. And I mean, I would encourage you to, you know, play with it and. Well, I have to do something with that bottle of rose water. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I got desperate to figure out like what I'm going to do with it. Right. And my hairdresser. Huh? Oh, right. A little dab. Oh, a little dab of my (laughs) No true story. So my hairdresser introduced me to this rose water shampoo and conditioner. Andre, it smells like heaven, right? It's obviously way too expensive. So I I only get it from time to time, right? So (laughs) um, I was running out of my favorite rose conditioner and shampoo. So I had the rose water in the fridge. And I was like, what if I, (laughs) what if I add rose water to my shampoo? (laughs) And and wouldn't that just smell amazing? All right. So number one, it did smell amazing. But number two, I was so sticky. (laughs) I was so sticky because it's viscous. I mean, water, yes, it's rose water, but it is viscous. So I recommend that um, you don't play and put it in your shampoo and conditioner. Um, but, you know, you live and learn, right? Yeah, you totally do. And you know what? I, sometimes there is a really fine line between food and cosmetics. Like when you, you know, I mean, I'm all about the avocado hair mask and, you know, whatever. Like, I feel like if you're putting it on your skin, like you should should maybe be able to eat it. I don't maybe, know. Right. Like, right. I'm with you. I would I would have done the rose water and the shampoo. Right. Why not? Why not? <laughs> you know, talking about rose water and and uh, melon, fruits and flowers brought me back to um to experiencing like your style. Cause I, I up until we worked together, like I said in the beginning of the show, like I had an idea about what pastry is or or desserts are. And I feel like that flower and fruit is very Andra. Did you bring that into your career path or is that something that, that developed naturally organically in the kitchen? You know, 
Kind of both, I would say. I, I've always kind of had a natural affinity for plants and flowers. And again, as, as a kid, one of my favorite games to play was I would go out into the garden and I would just steep flowers that I found. And I, in my mind, I was making perfume, you know, but I've always, I've just always really been drawn to plants and flowers. Um, so I think I, I just sort of learned how to apply that in the kitchen. And it was definitely encourage, you know, I mean, Seth was one of my first mentors and, you know, I would come to him with ideas and flavor combinations and he was just very encouraging. And then he really helped me develop my palate. Um, so what, what was it about, um, Seth's mentoring style that, that really worked for you? Cause you know, you always hear these nightmare stories about chefs being tyrants and I worked with Seth also, and I absolutely adore him, but what was it about his style that worked for you, that inspired you? So I think Seth was kind of the perfect combination of kind of letting me play and go in my own direction and sort of reining me back in, you know, if things were going awry or <laughs> whatever. So the way that the the development process would usually go with him was that I would have an idea for a dessert and I would make it and I would present it to him and he would offer his critiques or, you know, what was good and what, you know, maybe I could go this way with it. Or or sometimes he would come to me with um with an idea for a flight. Like actually, um, I'm remembering a time that he came up to me and he was saying that he thought chocolate and molasses together would be like a really great like flavor combination. And I, I never would have thought of that on my own. Wow. So, I mean, that was literally that in my memory, I just remember him telling me that, you know, what if we did a chocolate and molasses dessert? And I just went from there. And so, um, what I ended up doing was a, a bouchon, like a little brownie. Um, and, I did a salted caramel ice cream. Um, it had a marshmallow fluff. And then we did these, um, it was a bread, uh, kind of a breadcrumb. The soil? A soil. The soil. The soil. Do you remember the soil? Oh my God, yes. And that was heavily drenched in molasses. And I think we even had a stout beer. (laughs) I remember this. Yeah. So we made this kind of crumble for the plate um, that brought the molasses flavor to it. And it, it worked. But I mean... You know, sometimes he would just come to me with with something that he had found at the market, and at that at that time, I wasn't um, the main procurer of fruit. <laughs> I would sometimes go with him, mm-hmm. um, but he sometimes would just bring me something beautiful from from the market. He brought me a Buddha's hand one day, and you know, I made a risole with uh, with the Buddha hand. And talk to me about the Buddha hand <laughs> I, because I discovered the Buddha hand from from both Seth and you. And w- for the audience that has never tasted or seen a Buddha hand, what is a Buddha hand? So a Buddha hand is in the citrus family, but it's really unusual because it doesn't have the, the fleshy part of the citrus. It's like pure pith. So, and it, it's a crazy, it looks like a gnarly, big yellow hand like a with witch's fingers or something like it's a really crazy looking fruit and whoever looked at that and decided that it was something that could be made edible like i don't know 
like how that ever happened. But it smells beautiful. It, it is. It just it has a really gorgeous scent to it. And so what typically what people do with it is you candy it or you steep it into something. And so it has this very aromatic, um, beautiful scent that flavors um, whatever you're making. So for that particular dessert, I candied um, part of the, the Buddha hand and then I took the rest of it and I steeped it in the milk to make the the rice pudding and then made that into, um, you know, the plated dessert. It sounds like, like Seth and, uh, and you had a great collaboration. Is that how you like to work with, like, is that the ideal, um, relationship, um, with the chef that you like to have? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think when you have a good working relationship um, with your co-chefs, you get inspiration from them. Um, So, you know, Seth was really great in that regard. Uh, Nick Irvin, who also was at the Huntley at the time. um, So you mean uh, Chef Nick Irvin, that was our our chef de cuisine, Nick? Yes, that would be the Nick. Um, yeah, he, he was also really fun to collaborate with because the, the great thing about, you know, having multiple brains in the kitchen is that, you know, I mean, they're, I, I don't think the same way that Nick or, or Seth do. So they come up with these, you know, I, I, I think of myself as being a little bit more traditional or, um, yeah, just more traditional, whereas Nick and Seth are, are really adventurous. Cerebral, with, cerebral and, and, you know, I mean, they, they have, you know, they'll come to me with these, you know, crazy things that I never would have thought of. And then I can bring my pastry skills to it right. because both of them are savory chefs. I mean, yes. one of them, and that's um, one thing. You know, it's uh, maybe kind of unusual, but my first mentor was not a pastry chef. It was a savory savory chef. chef. And I think that, you know, he brought his savory brain to, you know, my my experience where, you know, I might have had a really completely different experience if I had just gone straight into a bakery and worked with, you know, a pastry chef right away. Um, that speaks volumes, I think, of how your your aesthetic has has developed over time, because. I've dined at a lot of restaurants and I've had a lot of desserts and I'm not saying this just to say it, but, and, and some of the old servers, you know, that, uh, that worked at the restaurant with you. And then, you know, we had subsequent other pastry chefs. I mean, your desserts are bomb. Like you're, I'm not kidding. Like your desserts are bomb. And I think it's really hard in the pastry space to be super creative because I think that people are married to, um, or they hold tight to their convictions about what pastry should be. And so like when you're, when you're growing, like, what do you, what do you rely on or, or how do you approach that growth so that you're not making like a freak show of a dessert and you're like, what do you mean you don't like it? (laughs) That's amazing. Just taste it. You know, like and I think that's that's one of your superpowers. Like, how do you approach that growth? It's funny that you said um, maybe taste, you know, it tastes weird. I mean, really using your senses is a big part of it um, and being really honest with yourself. You know, I mean, just because you worked really hard on something and you really want it to work doesn't mean that it's going to be delicious, unfortunately. <laughs> so I think that, you know, I mean, I, I guess everybody is kind of their own first critic, but just really recognizing, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Like what are, it it shouldn't really be um, an accident. It should be intentional. Like am I wanting to, you know, have a very crispy 
crust and a very, you know, airy kind of moussey texture? Like what, what are you going for? You know, which is a very good point. I, and I want to talk about specifics. So when Andra pastry chef, Andra goes to make a new dessert, what are the criteria that you look for? So flavor first, first and foremost, um, I like bright, clean flavors. Um, you know, if I, if I, I keep going back to the apple tart, but you know, I mean, I want it to taste like apples. I don't want to just taste, you know, sugar and, and whatever else. I mean, I, I really, you know, I go through the trouble of sourcing the best ingredients and I want to highlight them and really make them shine. Um, so flavor, right? That's, that's your biggest criteria. And then do you go through the other classic criteria like, texture, temperature, crunch. Um, do you try to have all of those on the plate or do you have like a hierarchy of like, what is the most important thing? It sounds like flavor, of course. And then after flavor, what are the other check marks that you look for? So yeah, texture is a big one. Um, it's not the it's not that a dessert has to hit every single texture, but you want to have some kind of contrast in there somewhere. Like you wouldn't want to have, let's say a custard with like, I don't know, um, something else. Like you wouldn't want to have a, a custard with just maybe like a, a chocolate sauce on top and then a whipped cream. And then that's it. You know, there you go. Cause it's all soft textures and mm -hmm. you know, that's not interesting. One of the marks of success of a great dessert is that I want to finish it. Like I don't want to just have one bite and then I'm done, you know? And if it, if you're, if you're just kind of monotone with either the flavor or the texture or what have you, um, it's kind of boring to the palate, you know? But if something has a lot of, you know, textures and, and maybe temperatures and, and different flavors going on that, you know, work together, then it's, it's interesting and you want to keep going and, you know, you're I not love done that idea. Idea of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, creating a dessert that you you want to finish because I'm thinking back to what has made me most happy uh, at, at dinner and and I'm like I said I'm a vanilla custard person and if I am like digging that spoon into the creme brulee in the corner it's because it not just because it's creme brulee and I like custard but it's a good balanced creme brulee, right? With good vanilla and that crunchy brulee sugar top. And it's, and it's a balance of creamy and crunchy. And, um, I don't know if what the word would be for that umami sense of caramel. Is that such a thing? I, don't, I know what you're talking about, that kind of like bitterness that, that contrasts with the sweet. Yes. Yeah. No, Maybe exactly. that's what I was trying like, to say. Yeah. I, I don't like, I like, I don't like just a sweet caramel. Like it's got to have a little bit of an edge to it. So definitely I like a kind of a almost bitter kind of caramel. <laughs> that sounds to me like, um, that sounds more modern to me than your traditional pastry or desserts. Um, so what techniques in modern, in modern pastry or desserts, um, are you using to like further develop yourself as a pastry chef? Like wh what is it, what techniques are really helping you move forward? Um, so yeah, I think, um, again, going to the market and just finding the very best fruits that I can find. Um, I, I do think that that's kind of a modern take on pastry where it's not just, you know, your, your cheesecake covered in weird jelly and, you know, frozen, this and that. So like, bad. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think just really fresh ingredients um, is really key. Um, 
How about how about salt? Um, when in doing research for for this episode, um, I came across a lot of really interesting commentary about the role of salt in modern desserts. Do you see yourself um, exploring salts in 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 your menus and in your desserts? I mean, I wouldn't say exploring insofar as I don't tend to use a, a wide variety of salts. I pretty much have, you know, my sea salt, my Malden salt, and maybe some fleur de sel. And those are kind of my basic three. But it is one of the most important things that I can uh-huh. <laughs> impart on people is salt is so necessary. To, I, I can't even think of a, a recipe that we don't have some kind of salt in it, honestly. Even um, the simple syrup that we make um, at craft, it's it's a little bit salted so that, you know, when I'm making sorbets or anything with a simple syrup, it's already seasoned. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's kind of like the rose water thing where it's not salty syrup. It's just salted. <laughs> yeah. Which is, which is um, I think for someone who's developing their life menu to have that, that knowledge um, underneath, you know, your practice is so important because, you know, the cookbooks say salt to taste for a very good reason. And in the, in the dessert world, salt doesn't get the attention it should. And I'm, I think it's really, really important to use salt appropriately, if not a little bit more aggressively than, you know, in past generations that would hardly put salt, you know, in their desserts. I'm a fan of salted caramel. <laughs> yeah, salt and, and acid, I would say. Acid, I didn't even bring that up, but acid plays just as big of a role as salt does. What do you, um, so when you say acid, do you mean like lemon juice? I, I mean lemon juice or anything that will have some kind of tang. I mean, it could be, you know, a vinegar or it could be, I mean, typically it's 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 lemon juice, um, but or at least in the pastry world. But I'm just saying that, uh, you know, you, you can get acid from other sources. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say, like, I'll go back to the sorbet example. Um, my our, our sorbet recipe that we use is always um, fruit and simple syrup. <laughs> and oh, that is it. Really? <laughs> well, but then you know, you'll add a little bit of acid to, to balance the flavor. So let's say I was making, um, you know, a pear sorbet, I would have my pears, um, and my simple salted, simple syrup and a little squeeze of lemon juice. And that's, that's all you need. And you're just balancing. So again, it's not that it tastes like salt or it tastes like lemon juice. It tastes like pear, but it just kind of sharpens the flavors, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, I guess you would say like fine tunes. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, going that's a great way of putting it. And it, when you're, um, let's say you, you get really good at one dish, right? And you're scratching your head like, oh, what, what, how can I make this even better? It's f- that concept of fine tuning. I think that's really helpful for someone who's developing like their life menu. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's actually kind of an important thing that, you know, going back to what should a pastry cook try to, what skills should they hone is learn how to season things. <laughs> that's, that's a huge one. And, you know, again, it's, it's not like you're trying to mask flavors, you're trying to highlight. And so that should always be the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just get really comfortable with learning how to use salts and acid. <laughs> and so we've talked about salts, we talked about acid. And I think for me, two other ingredients were really important to master. Number one, 
how they function and to um, the outcome that they provide. And that is sugar, right? And uh, butter. And as a pastry chef who's worked in all these different, you know, capacities, because I, I was going through your bio and you've done everything from vegan baking to pasta to fine dining to bougie dining. And so you've, you've worked with a lot of sugar and, and butter. Is it true that unsalted butter is like, that's like the pinnacle? Should, I, no, honestly, like when you go to bake, do you use unsalted butter? Okay, two things on that. Yes. <laughs> it is possible to create delicious baked goods with salted butter, and they will be delicious. But the reason why we use unsalted butter is because typically your recipes will be adding salt. So you use unsalted butter so you're not over-salting your recipe. That being said, if I was going to make a shortbread cookie and I use some delicious, fancy, salted European butter, it's going to be delicious like, right. <laughs> um, because your ingredients are delicious, you know? But, but again, I mean, if you're, if you're modifying your own recipe and you have a shortbread recipe and you decide to use, you know, salted butter, you need to taste your dough and decide, you know, does it need the extra salt that the recipe calls for? Or can I omit it? Or should I, you know, sprinkle some on top later or, you know, so you you just have to use your, your palate and your judgment. And, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the reason why we use unsalted butter. It's not that your recipe will fail or it won't be good. <laughs> it's just, it's just, you don't want to oversalt things. Uh, thank you for that clarification. Um, I just won a, uh, a free dinner because <laughs> I kept saying that, yeah, unsalted butter is is the choice uh, of pastry chefs. And the person I was chatting with was like, "Well, I don't, I don't think that that's true." Anyway, I win. Uh huh. Um, so, and let's talk a little bit about sugar being something to master as you're developing your pastry chef um, career path. I learned many different kinds of sugar from you, and. Why is it, why can't you just use white sugar in all your pastries? I mean, come on, like, does it have to be that complicated? It's funny. I, at this point, um, I've been using organic sugar for, for several years now. And, and the sight of bleached white sugar is just so like blinding to me at this point. Like they, um, they use it at the bar for a, a truly clear, simple syrup, which is the only reason that we purchase it at all, um, at Kraft. Uh, but yeah, just the sight of it. I mean, it almost looked like a, a Christmas decoration or something so sparkly white, you know? Um, it is a personal, I mean, it, you can swap out organic sugar for bleach sugar one-to-one uh -huh. -one and your recipes will be comparable. Um, so it, again, it's, it's just a personal choice. It's on brand for us at Kraft, but that's not to say that your listeners can't use, you know, <laughs> you can use bleach sugar at home. I won't tell anyone it's mine. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, as, as I said, I mean, I just prefer working with organic ingredients. And we talked about this years ago. Some of the other styles of sugar, they have more molasses in them and which changes their, their water content. And I think it just comes down to knowing how the sugar is going to the outcome that you're going to get with different types of sugars. Um, in culinary school, uh, I learned that sugar has two functions, right? So it's not only for seasoning, but, but for texture that it produces a softer cookie, if you will. Am I on the right path with that? I, it depends 
what you mean exactly. I mean, too much sugar will actually make your cookie kind of brittle and too, um, like, because what it does, here's the thing about sugar is that what I didn't realize until I was baking professionally is that in a recipe, it actually will function as a liquid ingredient because it dissolves, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a wet ingredient. I mean, I know it looks dry and it flows and pours out, but technically in baking terms, it, it can function as a liquid. And yeah, I mean, it does a lot of things. I mean, it provides structure. Um, you know, again, like let's say you're doing a, a, a chiffon cake and you're making a meringue. Uh, your meringue is what's providing the structure of the cake. And the sugar in the egg whites is really providing that function. I mean, if you were to just whip the egg whites on their own, they wouldn't have the stability that they need to really aerate your cake. So sugar, yeah, it, it does all kinds of things. <laughs> like it's really, I mean, you know, it, it is important to be familiar with what the ingredients do in your recipes. Um, I think that's what, I think that's what it really comes down to is as you grow your life menu or as you get uh, as you grow your skills, that learning, that continuing to learn about ingredients and the function of ingredients is so fundamental to taking you to the next level. Because sure, you're going to have like technique, right? And you're going to have fundamental understanding of butter, sugar, flour, but variances on those ingredients could, you know, provide you a much different outcome. So being, being a lifelong student of, you know, researching ingredients and, and techniques, I think will go a long way in helping you grow as a, as a pastry chef, right? Definitely. And, you know, you touched on the, the vegan baking uh, experience I had and, that was where I really felt like the roles of ingredients and their function um, really came into play because what was surprising to me, um, I mean, I guess it shouldn't have been surprising, was that, you know, proteins across the board, whether they be from an animal source or a vegetable source, they kind of will do similar things. And th this was my big learning moment was that, um, so everyone, not everyone, but most people are familiar with the fact that if you are trying to make a meringue with egg whites and there's even a little bit of fat or yolk or something in the bowl, then you're not going to be able to whip them up. Um, fat does something to proteins where um, they they just don't react in the same way. So for some reason, I, I didn't realize that the same would hold true in the vegan baking world where I was making a meringue with um, aquafaba. aquafaba. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, chick chickpea liquid. And I had, I think I had made, you know, some kind of vegan whipped cream or something in the bowl. And not realizing that it would react the same way. I just kind of wiped out the bowl and proceeded to make my meringue and it didn't work. And I was like, well, no wonder it didn't work. I would never have done that if I was doing traditional baking. I wouldn't have made a buttercream and then wiped out the bowl and then made tried to make a meringue, you know, and it didn't work. But it was because I had fat and protein and they just weren't weren't interacting in the way that I wanted them to. <laughs> I, I find that, um, I find that vegan baking is really fascinating because of the science. Um, not, I mean, I'm glad that it, it's, it's a, it's a skill in and of itself because if, if you're vegan and then you don't have to give up having cake or, you know, cookies or whatever, but I'm fascinated by the science of alternative proteins, you know, and how they could produce 
absolutely delicious dessert. Were you surprised by what you were able to make in the vegan pastry space? I was. I, I definitely was. And there there were a lot of surprises um, with the vegan baking, I'll say. Um, and a lot of that was trial and error. Um, I didn't feel like there were quite as many resources um, in that area. I mean, there, there, there are plenty of books and there are plenty of blogs and websites and, you know, all of that. But I feel like one thing when, when I was working with Nick at, at Urban, which was the vegan restaurant, um, we, and that was the vegan restaurant in Santa Monica, right? Santa Monica. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. The goal of the restaurant was that we would have vegan food that, you know, even non-vegan people would be perfectly happy to eat. And so we almost tried to kind of fool people into believing that they were eating non-vegan food. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, <laughs> okay, this is where I'm going to not sugarcoat things. I guess this Bring is, it this on. Is Bring it on. Sometimes I feel like with vegan baking, um, it's almost like there's this permission that, you know, it doesn't have to be as good as regular baking because it's vegan, you know, like it, it's, you know, it, it's passable for a cookie. And so, you know, people will still eat it and it might be sweetened with, you know, raisin juice or something. Right. It's like, you know, but I, we wanted it to actually be delicious. We wanted it to taste like, you know, had butter. (laughs) Not to say that, you know, non-vegan ingredients can't be delicious, but, you know, I didn't want to make things that were just passable. Like I wanted to actually make something that was truly delicious. And there was a lot of frustration and a lot of, you know, banging my head against, you know, the wall. And, um, but, but again, there, there were some really remarkable, um, discoveries. Uh, one thing super weird, but, um, I realized that the, the marshmallow fluff that we had made when I'm doing air quotes here, Mm -hmm. um, with aquafaba was, um, actually a great stabilizer for the ice cream, which I, I don't know, how oh, or why that the science like, I, that's what i'm saying like that was a totally because i don't bas- know the science behind that one i <laughs> will say basically <laughs> it's the the juice from cooked chickpeas as a stabilizer for for an for a cold product that's whipped uh i i don't know i, yeah, I don't know the know, science behind it you know what it was? That was kind of more of an intuitive guess that ended up working out. But the form that I would use um, to incorporate the aquafaba as a stabilizer, um, it was already kind of a marshmallowy fluff. So it had this kind of spongy, bouncy texture to it that doesn't really freeze into an icy texture. And so the the ice cream in particular that I was using it for was a, a cinnamon um, cashew based ice cream, uh, and I found that if I incorporated a little bit of the marshmallow fluff, it it made this beautiful texture in the ice cream machine where it just it didn't freeze into an icy texture. You know, I guess that's kind of the thing. Like there are some intuitive guesses that you make where I know that, you know, a, a, a liquid sugar, like sugar in its invert form. What do you mean invert form? Um, li- so a, a liquid sugar, like uh, one thing that is used as a stabilizer in ice cream sometimes is um, something called trimaline, which is, or, or glucose, um, which it's liquid sugar. And something about the chemical structure of it, um, it doesn't freeze into an icy texture. And like so crystals. It's, yeah, into crystals. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's kind of where my brain was going with the like, 
you know, mar- maybe the marshmallow fluff will work. As oh, like, interesting. You know, because it, it was kind of that goopy, sugary, I, I like sugar goop. goop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like sugar but goop. But I, I, I mean, to be fair, Andre, that's that's <laughs> your years of experience and um, curiosity and skills coming into play to uh, to build out a vegan dessert menu because that's 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 quite a challenge. I, I don't think that I would be able to. I would just go back to Jersey and go get that big hunk of cheesecake and say, you know what, here, this is what you're getting. And that's the end of it. You know, I've really, I've really enjoyed picking your brain and hearing about the skills that you use to, to build your career. Cause you've built quite, quite the career. And I'm, I want to go to a, a series of questions that I ask every guest to further get to know you a little bit more. Um, and that is, what are you drinking, right? Um, what's making you happy in the pastry world? And what is your favorite pastry or dessert gift to give a friend or colleague? So let's start with what are you drinking? And it doesn't have to be alcoholic. So I have three drinks that keep me alive, <laughs> water, coffee, and my breakfast power smoothie. And that is literally like, I, I barely touch alcohol. So those are the three things that keep me alive. Uh-huh. Water, what's in <laughs> my, this my power, power smoothie? smoothie. <laughs> okay. So, and I, I do call it my power smoothie at work. Um, so again, I mean, I go to the market and I have access to the most beautiful produce in all of California. <laughs> I throw it all into a blender with some soy milk and some ice. Um, and that's my power smoothie. But I, I so like greens and fruit green, or just uh, greens? No, it, it's it's a mix of whatever's in season. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's greens. It, 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 no, it's, it's usually I have to have at least three vegetables in it and then however much fruit I want. So it's typically some kind of green, you know, a kale or spinach, usually a carrot or a beet something, whatever, you know, whatever I find in the walk-in. And then as long as I have a banana, a date, or an apple, I swear that's what it'll taste like. And so it could be the color of, you know, like something I scraped off my shoe, but it will taste delicious. Like If you have banana, if you have banana, banana, date, or apple, like banana, date, or apple. Okay. Okay. Those are like, that's my secret. So my, that's the five a day that I get is in my power smoothie. (laughs) I didn't, I didn't see that one coming at all. Right. Well, it's, it's funny because when I saw the the question, I was like, I don't drink alcohol. I was like, power smoothie. (laughs) That is my, that's my drink. (laughs) Um, That's funny. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. Um, And so what in the pastry or dessert world is making you happy? So I feel like pastry is finally getting the respect it deserves and it's no longer that horrible cheesecake that (laughs) we've or maligned cheesecake, like um, you know, this past I'm never going to be able to go to a diner. <laughs> and here's the thing: is I love cheesecake. I, I love cheesecake, and I love New York cheesecake. Right. I'm a cheesecake fan, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like pastry is getting the respect it deserves. Um, this past summer, there was a really amazing article in the LA Times that was profiling all these wonderful uh, pastry chefs in Los Angeles. And, you know, it's, there's a little bit of a rivalry in the kitchen. And I mean, it can be, you know, a healthy competition, but the savory side is traditionally, you know, 
kind of looking down on the pastry world as if, you know, we're not the, the real cooks or <laughs> what have you. But I don't feel like there's that sentiment at all anymore. I, I, I certainly have never encountered it personally. Um, every chef that I've worked with has been very respectful of the pastry world and of, of my work and, you know, wants to collaborate and all of that. Um, so that's really exciting. You know, I, I like that, you know, nobody else has to live through that world. Of <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I see... I see so much more attention to pastry technique and I'm fascinated by it. Even in casual conversation, you know, I'll chat with someone about tempering chocolate, you know, in the, in the science behind why you should temper chocolate. And I think that's amazing. Like that's where things are right now. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that, um, (laughs) it's so funny. I don't, I don't watch cooking shows in general, but I mean, everybody, you know, tells me about the great British baking show. And I feel like that has done so much for like, and I love how, you know, I mean, I guess I, again, I don't watch it, but everybody talks about how, you know, they're so nice to each other and they're so friendly. And like, I just feel like it's really incited, like a lot of enthusiasm about, you know, the pastry world and what we do. And, you know, I think that's pretty kind of cool. And final question, what is your favorite gift other than a tornado apple (laughs) tart? (laughs) What is your favorite pastry or dessert gift to give a friend or a colleague? So I love to give chocolate. Like I really love to find just really good quality chocolate. Um, I recently discovered at the row, uh, just adjacent to me, uh, here down, downtown. Um, it, it's called the row. It's a new, like, oh, so shopping it's a, a new center. shopping area. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, there's a shop called dandelion chocolate that mm-hmm. I just, um, recently discovered and they're amazing. I love their chocolate. Um, at work we use mainly Valrona, um, um, I've also worked with letterpress chocolate as well. I know letterpress. I love letterpress, yeah. I love letterpress so, chocolate. Yeah. So, I mean, I love to give just a really nice, delicious bar of chocolate. <laughs> like, I know I said earlier I'm not a chocolate person, but like, you know, I mean, who's nobody's going to hate a fancy bar of chocolate. No, 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 <laughs> yeah, no. So. Well, I, I feel that um, – I feel that I thought I knew – Andra completely. And I've really enjoyed chatting with you and getting inside of your mind and, and getting to know you a little bit more. And, and I think that listeners will walk away with some really good tidbits. So thank you. Thank you. Nikki. Thank you this so much. <laughs> thank you. And happy holidays. Thank you. You too. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I know I had. It was so fun interviewing Chef Andra. I thought that I knew her, like I said, but wow, it was just so awesome to get all of these new morsels of of information and inspiration. And I hope you too. I hope that that you found some tidbits and and some new info to help you grow as a baker and some inspiration to help you grow your own life menu. And with that in mind, I want you to know that I created an extensive show notes for this episode, and you can find it on the website, kitchenscenainvestigator.com. There's a tab on the upper right-hand corner, show notes, where you can find the show notes. You can also find uh, Chef Andra's bio. And the show notes has an enormous amount of info. It has links, it has quotes, it has videos, it has 
books. It, it gives you more information to keep learning. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at info at kitchenscenainvestigator.com. I love hearing from you. I love getting your feedback. And, you know, getting your constructive feedback helps me grow the show. So give it a review. Uh, get on the apps and uh, let me know that you like the show. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm glad we got to spend this time together. Be safe, be healthy, and from my kitchen here in Los Angeles, I will see you next time. Bye.